Well, has this ever happened to you? You bring home a delicious-looking bag of cherries from the store. And on your way home from the grocery store, you munch on a few. They're sweet. They're delicious. So you have a few more. And when you get home, you continue to snack on some more cherries because they are so good. Then you sit down, get out your phone to check messages while you absently mindedly just continue to... (laughs) Snack on those cherries, scrolling through Facebook, whatever it might be. And before you know it, you've eaten most of the bag. Maybe all of the cherries in that bag. And now your poor stomach is protesting too many cherries. And it won't be long before your your intestines chime in on that protest as well. But if only you could have exerted self-control and stopped after a handful. You probably have that situation going on with potato chips or whatever. You can probably put in whatever it is in that blank that you go, yeah, I have a trouble with that. I wish I could have some self-control. But if there was ever a least popular fruit of the Spirit from the list in Galatians 5, I think self-control might have a good shot at winning. It's arguably the character trait that takes the most effort and gets the least praise. If you're doing it right, people don't even notice how much self-control you have. But of course, when the Holy Spirit guides our lives, then our selfish motives aren't prompting that character growth. It's not selfishness. So things like public praise and acknowledgement for our progress just doesn't matter at all. We're coming to the end of our series of the Fruit of the Spirit We've gone through the summer and, and touched on each character, uh, each, each virtue of uh, this fruit of the Spirit. And I trust that you've realized in this summer series that the fruit only comes when we allow the Holy Spirit to influence our thoughts and our actions. We, we, we create space for it when we set aside our cares and concerns and defer to God's leading in our lives. It may seem a little ridiculous to think about self-control in terms of allowing the Holy Spirit to control ourself. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> that doesn't compute sometimes. But, but self-control is more about having mastery uh, over our destructive impulses and negative reactions rather than being in control all the time. Self-control isn't about being in control all the time. It's about, about being able to uh, have that mastery over those destructive impulses and negative reactions. And there is a difference between those. This concept isn't as easy to spot as other fruits of the Spirit, like joy, gentleness, since the battle for self-control happens within. There are a couple of ways to think about it. First, self-control can be demonstrated by the ability to control our impulses or, or practice restraint. We don't take a second uh, helping at dinner, or, or we don't watch that fourth episode in a row on Netflix. We provide some self-control. And second, self-control can be understood as the ability to control our external reactions as well. We don't yell when we're angry, or we don't get wrapped up in social media debates where we just get all angry and erupt in, in fury. When defined with a Christian worldview... Self-control doesn't end at our ability to not do something we want to do. 
Instead of bottling up our anger, we allow the Holy Spirit to teach our, 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 our spirit how to, how, to, how to be Christ-like. What is it to walk as Christ walked through these situations? As our minds and emotions become restrained, we change from the inside out. Not just bottling things up, but learning how to journey through those situations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, Either way, Christ's love con con controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old self. Developing this fruit means we stop pretending to be restrained <laughs> because we are restrained. <laughs> we are restrained. When the Holy Spirit teaches us how to have true self-control, we don't just grin and bear a, a negative situation. We find a way through it. We restrain our emotional reaction and then allow the Holy Spirit to impact the way we think about the event. So it's a two-way process. Let's say... Let's say you're part of a political discussion that goes sideways. Maybe in person, over the dinner table, maybe on social media, whatever it might be. There are opposing, passionate viewpoints, and you're beginning to become a little emotional about it. How do you demonstrate self-control in this situation? Let me share a few steps to take that, I, that I've, I've, I've discovered here as well. I want to pass on to you. Now, that first step is more of a surface-level response in self-control. You bite your tongue. You don't throw fuel on the fire. You, we all understand how to do this. We just stop right where we're at. And, of course, in the heat of the moment, this isn't really easy, but it is possible. So we emotionally distance ourselves from the conversation, hold back our words. It's, it's the nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. So you back up. If it's in person at the dinner table and this conversation is kind of getting a little tense, you just continue just to eat. <laughs> My mouth is full. I can't say anything. Sorry. You know. If it's on social media, you just go, okay, moving on. And don't comment. It's pretty easy in that way. Tough, but easy. <clears throat> so that's step one, surface level response. Just you stop. Step two is then asking the Holy Spirit to change our mindset, where we're at with the situation. To be open to this, we need to quiet our mind and pray for self-control. In that moment, praying for self-control, we can ask the Lord to help us see a way to find peace in the conversation or a resolution to, be, to not be personally affected by other people's political positions. <clears throat> we can be kind of uptight sometimes when we hear someone else's political position or other positions that's kind of like a hot button, hot button. This is in itself no easy task. It's not too easy to try to go through all this and, and be able to uh, stop and pray for self-control during this time. But with God's help, it is possible. And then a third step in all this is staying right there in that mental place. That mental place. The goal is maintaining restraint. And sure, other people may not be interested in this happening, but you don't have to let them pull you back down the hill. You don't have to l let them drag you into that conversation again. Despite what's going on around the dinner table or on social media, you can choose not to engage in the debate while still being polite. Uh, some of you got this pretty well down. You, 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 I've seen it on Facebook before. I'm, Guys would, would respond, and, and, and you might say something on, on comment on Facebook, and someone comes in and just goes, and just, just pounds you. 
and then you, then you, your your response is more like, that's a that's an interesting um, point of view. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And that's all you do. And that's like, wow, good job, great. Don't feed into it. You you but you stay right in that moment there, and you be polite about it. Or maybe you can find a way to participate while still practicing self-control in all of it. But figure out where your lines are, which topics are safe for you and which aren't, and don't go further. Know your limits. If you know that if, if, if there's some political uh, post on Facebook or wherever else, <clears throat> then you know to avoid that. Don't continue through it and, and look at the comments because it will drag you in and then you'll get sucked in. you go, i got to say something. <clears throat> you don't. But continue praying for God's strength and all that. This is a tough balancing act, but again, it's possible to achieve. And then a fourth step in all this is learning how to practice self-control as a first response rather than an emergency tactic. It should be an ongoing thing, continuing on with self-control. And of course, it, it goes against our human nature to not react when we feel insulted or wronged or we just plain disagree. We want our due. We want justice. We want to prove how right we are in this, on this topic. So this comes over time after learning how to live under Christ's power in all of this. And while self-control can become a, a, a more natural response, it will always be something we work towards. It's an ongoing process. Welcome to the journey of self-control. And self-control is very necessary. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Finally, get into the one portion of Scripture that's in your bulletin. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And we're going to be looking at this to guide us a little bit. And then we're going to look at some ways of how to cultivate this self-control. We'll share some ways there. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Great verse, familiar verse. Don't forget that verse. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. There was one pastor uh, who, who reported that when he announced to his congregation that he was going to be preaching on self-control, a member remarked, I don't have any problem with self. It's the control that's tricky. <laughs> I'm sure we all can agree with that as well, too. Don't have any problem with, self, with myself and its desires. The problem arises when others don't give me what I want. That's why uh, I become impatient. That's why I become unkind. That's why I become grumpy. But the, the Apostle Paul pointed out that these are acts of the sinful nature in Galatians chapter 5, not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, again, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and, of course, self-control. And do you realize how self-control is related to those other characteristics? It, it takes self-control to patiently bear with others instead of condemning them. It takes self-control to be gentle instead of giving into your anger and flying off the handle about something. 
It takes self-control to maintain peace and being willing to be wronged instead of loudly insisting on your rights. Self-control is among all these other uh, virtues of uh, fruit of the Spirit. Well, thank you. It's all gone now. <laughs> thank you, John. So why should we practice self-control? Why, we should, why, we sh why should we be doing this if it takes so much restraint? The Apostle Peter tells us why in our text. In verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, if you haven't realized it yet, yes, Satan's after you, ready to trip you up, ready to take you down the wrong path, ready to deceive you. He is waiting for you to lose control the way a sniper will patiently wait for his target to carelessly expose himself to a clear shot. And like a careful sniper who doesn't make his presence known, Satan often operates in the background, wanting us to believe that losing self-control isn't really all that dangerous. We might believe it because nothing permanently bad happened to us last time we lost our self-control with alcohol, or we lost our self-control when we were on that last date. But there, the thing is, is that Satan is just biding his time. He's patiently waiting. He's luring you more and more out into the open, away from your Savior, so that when he finally does pounce, you'll be an easy score. Isn't that what happened to Judas? If you look at that, he failed to curb his greed so that although he may have taken only small sums from the disciples' treasury at first, he became more and more careless until he didn't think much of selling a Savior to make a few bucks. What part of your life needs more self-control? What sins do you repeatedly give into so that you, you've even stopped feeling guilty for them? Have you re rationalized a, a break in a relationship by blaming the other person for all the wrongdoing? It does take two in a relationship, some form, some way, some, somehow. Do you excuse the Friday night binges because you earned it by staying sober the rest of the week? Do you look at pornography because, well, no one is getting hurt by what you do? All lies from Satan. When attitudes like that crop up, then back to this text. Get back to this text of 1 Peter. Satan is a real enemy who seeks to do you real harm. Don't take this threat lightly. Consider, consider how shortly after creation, Satan managed to convince a third of the angels to rebel. We're talking angels. <laughs> Spirits who were without sin and created to love and serve God. If Satan managed to get them to rebel against their God, how should, how, we should be pretty easy targets for him. Thankful, th thankfully, we have an ally in this fight. Good news is God himself is our ally. Peter wrote this in verses 6 and 7 in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We resist the devil by submitting to God. Submitting to God like ducking inside a building when there's a big old downpour raging out outside. 
But do you find that you more often rely on your own smarts and your own power to get you through some difficulties? That might be the go-to at first. I can handle this. I can think through this. I can figure it out. And then when you come to the point where you can't figure it out, you find yourself in a mess in the middle of it. Then that's where we go, Lord, save me, help me. I've messed this up. But maybe the first step should have been going to God first, praying to him, help me through this, help me make it through. But there's no need to get frustrated, not when God has invited you to take all those frustrations, all those concerns, all those anxieties, and cast them upon him. He asks you to do that. So if you have an anxious thought about what might be coming up, he says, give it to me. I can handle it. If you have some concern about a relative or a work member or whatever that you're just praying for, give it to God. Give that anxiety about that person to God. Cast your cares upon Him. He invites you to do that. So that should be our first, that should be our first go-to when we face those anxieties. Give it to God straight away. When you feel that just welling up inside of you, give it to God right away. Cast it upon Him. That word cast is the same word used for what the disciples did with their garments on Palm Sunday. They cast them on the donkey so Jesus could sit on them. Jesus invites us to do the same things with our cares and concerns, to cast them upon him so that he can carry them for us. You don't have to carry those concerns. You don't have to carry those burdens, those anxieties. Give them to God. And when we fail to regularly give these burdens to Jesus, we're like the guy on the moving day who thinks he can carry four boxes stacked on top of each other. It's not the weight of those boxes, though. The problem is the fact that he can't see where he's going. That's going to be his downfall. Looking around, can't see. Oh, I'm just going to take that next step. In the same way, Satan loves it when we're distracted with our concerns. He loves it when we, we get distracted from what we're supposed to be focused on. That's when he throws his roadblocks in our way to trip us up. Then he accuses God of not loving us when it's really our own fault that we got, got ourselves into the trouble in the first place because we weren't trusting God in the first place. Remain alert for Satan's tricks and for his attacks. They're coming. If you're not involved with one right now, they're coming. Because he's going to be working on you to keep you off, off uh, focus of God. And just as you remain alert when walking in a dangerous part of town, we should be remaining alert on Satan's attacks for us. But of course, we don't have to walk through life afraid. Walking down a, a, a dark alley in downtown Portland in the middle of the night can be kind of scary. Very scary, in fact. But when we uh, walk through life, we do not have to be afraid like that. Peter assures us in, in verses 8 through 10, he says, Resist the devil, standing firm in the faith. In verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Your gracious God has already lifted you up in the person of Jesus. You have Jesus with you in that way. When Jesus was lifted up onto the cross, it was to suffer the punishment for our lack of self-control. 
You and I were there with Jesus. We were also being lifted up. Kind of way a, 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 a child is thrust upward by a drowning parent in, in a desperate attempt to get, pass, get a passing lifeboat to take the child on board to safety. We raise that child up to make sure that child is safe and don't care about our own well-being. That's what God is doing for us, making sure that we are cared for, making sure that we have Jesus with us. He wants us to have that relationship with him. But this gracious God doesn't just save, he also empowers. He will make you strong. He will make you firm. He will make you steadfast. Jesus echoed that promise when he told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Notice how Jesus did not say if we remain in him that we might bear much fruit. He said we will bear much fruit. And that's a promise. Stay connected to Jesus. So there's hope for all of us when it comes to showing self-control. So what can we do in order to cultivate this very important virtue of self-control? Let me share with you at least five ways. Five ways to be able to cultivate this self-control. One of the ways, know God's word. Just know God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, familiar verse, six, verses 16 and 17. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, knowing God's word is the very first thing on this to-do list of cultivating the virtue of self-control. The very first thing to enable us to cultivate self-control is knowing God's word. Not just acknowledging that there's a Bible. Knowing God's word. We need to line up our will with God's will in knowing God's, God's, God's word in that way. You think about it as a car alignment. If you got a car and, and, and the front wheels are a little wobbly, um, front end will get out of shape because they're not in alignment. You have a bumpy ride going on. Um, in order for those two tires to go smoothly, they have to be in alignment. And when they turn, they turn together. Not like, you know, <laughs> like this going on. You got problems when you have bad alignment with your car. And when those tires are aligned, there's a smooth ride for you. In the same way, God's will and, and your will have to be aligned together. Because when God's will and, and your will are aligned, then your life is also going to be aligned together as well. So there's God's will, your will, and then your life. When these elements are lined up together, you have peace, you have harmony, you have self-control going on. But when they are misaligned, you're out of control, out of self-control. So the first step in gaining control over self is to know God's will. And the only way to know God's will is to know God's word. And the only way to know his word, you got to read it. You got to study it. You got to hear it often. So that's why it's so important coming to, to church on Sundays, getting to Sunday school, uh, getting to a Bible study so that you hear God's word, getting on a reading plan. If you have never read through the Bible in a year or, or whatever, how long, um, you read the Bible through with a reading plan, I encourage you to do so. 
Because when you hear it, when you read it, you remember some things about it. And God's word never returns void. And when you study it, you go further in knowing God's word. And when, again, when you know God's word, you'll know more about God's will for your life as well, too. So know God's word. Another way to cultivate the virtue of self-control, know the danger or the lack of self-control. You should know the consequences of a lack of self-control. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he gets to adultery. He, he recalls the Old Testament law regarding adultery, the outward act, and then he states that adultery begins in the heart and follows with the act. He emphasizes the part that the heart is what you got to look on the inside, what's going on. Then he suggests a solution to all of this in verse uh, verses, uh, Matthew 5, verses 29 through 30. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I don't know if any of you during the Olympics caught any of the wrestling that was going on. There are some big guys wrestling out there. <laughs> big women, too, as well, wrestling. All sorts of people that were out there wrestling. And some of those um, moments, you had uh, one guy be able to take down another guy with just a simple hold. Just a small, tiny hold. But his arm was in an arm bar, or his leg was in a leg bar, and he couldn't move. But this big, gigantic guy could do something, but he couldn't because he was immobilized by one little part of his body. He couldn't do anything. It's like the same way with, if you've ever had mom take you by the ear, <laughs> you can't do anything when that happens. Satan works exactly in this way in our lives as well. He tries to control one little part of our lives. Because of lack of control in one part of our life that he takes advantage of, he's able to control our whole life. It's as if Satan gets that small wrestling hold on us and somehow manages to move the entire body around because he's got a hold of one little part of us. So when he succeeds, he manipulates all parts of our lives from that one part. Let's say you have some sort of secret vice. Some sort of secret vice, and I'm... I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know anything, okay? So don't get nervous. But let's say you have some sort of secret vice, some weakness that you allow in your life, and, and you know, if you can name it if you do, whatever. But anyway, in your mind. And Satan gets hold of that. Satan gets hold of that secret vice in your life. Since he's got a hold of you there, he'll help you lie about it. He'll help you conceal it. And then your job begins to suffer at work. Then your relationships begin to suffer then your health begins to suffer, all because of that hold that he has on just one part of your life. That one part of your life that nobody else knows about. Satan found out about it, and he's exploiting it for his use. You see, once Satan controls one little part, he will then try to control everything else. If God doesn't control you, Satan will control you. You're not just in the middle doing nothing. We need to understand the danger of not having self-control. When Jesus says, better you lose an eye or, or, an, or a hand than the entire body, recognize the danger of not having self-control. 
recognizes the danger of allowing Satan to worm his way into a part of your life and control it to the extent where he controls all other parts of your life from just that one little area. Be aware of the danger of the lack of self-control. A third way to cultivate self-control, know there could be suffering involved. <laughs> know that there could be suffering involved. Prepare for it. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, tells his disciples what they should do if they want to be his disciples. He says they have to deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow him. There's suffering involved. Peter's encouragement to those believers who are scattered throughout the region, verse 10 of 1 Peter 5, we already read it, and the God of grace, God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. There's suffering involved. And then look, you look at what Paul tells the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. See, Paul encouraged the Corinthians about temptation in a culture that was filled with immorality and, and the enticement to sin. You kind of think about it, that's these days too. We, are, we had that allurement all around us. And he said that temptations happen to everyone, so don't feel you've been singled out. Temptations come to everyone. He also said others have resisted temptation, and so can you. You can do this. And he said, any, any temptation can be resisted because God will show you a way out. Not because you can do it on your own. Not because you have the strength or the mental ability to avoid this temptation. It's because God, God will help you. One commentator said, the temptations that seized, a Bible commentator, the temptations that seized the Corinthians were like those people uh, were like those people had always faced. They could be met and endured by depending on God who is faithful. Part of the Corinthian problem, of course, was that some in the face of temptation were not looking for a way out by endurance, but a way in for indulgence. <laughs> they weren't looking for a way out. They wanted to be able to be part of this. They wanted to indulge. You know, for some, the battle for self-control is lost because they aren't really intending to do battle. There are some who are just not, they're, they're giving up. They're not intending to fight. They're, they're intending to give in because it's easier. Who's it going to harm anyway? There was a cost for self-control that they were not willing to pay. Uh, an author, Scott Peck, writes in his book, The Road Less Traveled, he said, I spent much of my ninth summer on a bicycle. About a mile from our house, the road went down a steep hill and turned sharply at the bottom. Coasting down the hill one morning, I felt my gathering speed to be ecstatic. To give up this ecstasy by applying brakes seemed an absurd self-punishment. So I resolved to simultaneously retain my speed and negotiate the corner. My ecstasy ended seconds later when I was propelled a dozen feet off the road into the woods. <laughs> I was badly scratched and bleeding, and the front wheel of my new bike was twisted beyond use from its impact against a tree. 
I had been unwilling to suffer the pain of giving up my ecstatic speed in the interest of maintaining my balance around the corner. I learned, however, that the loss of balance is ultimately more painful than the giving up required to maintain balance. Had to give up. Had to have the self-control. People who fail at gaining self-control fail because they think this should come without a cost. It shouldn't cost them anything. But in reality, we need to be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to suffer, but yes, but also be prepared to rejoice as you see yourself liberated from the slavery of sin. That's promise as well, too. A fourth area that we can do that, that uh, uh, we can cultivate self-control in our lives is pattern your life after winners, not losers. <laughs> pattern your life after winners, not losers. There's a saying that says, if you want to fly like an eagle, don't hang around with the chickens. Want to fly like an eagle, don't hang around with the chickens. Imitate people who are worthy of imitation, who have a proven record of success in spiritual living. They're all around us. Tap into that. Paul commends the, the new converts for their imitation of Paul and his workers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. So Paul and his workers set an excellent example for those new converts in Thessalonica. They copied his example, and they became models for other churches throughout the region. The people in Thessalonica, they were pagans, and, and, and the change in them was due to the fact that they modeled their behavior after what they wanted to become, not what they once were. They modeled that after what they wanted to become. The same principle holds true today. We need to have fellowship with and pattern ourselves after people who have succeeded where we have failed. You find those people in, our in your life. You find those people around you. That if you're having trouble and struggling in a certain area in your life, and you know someone in your life that has had victory in that, you got to go to them and say, how did you do it? What can you share with me? And you learn. You imitate. To gain self-control, we must imitate those who have themselves gained self-control in the areas where we are trying to gain that same self-control. Model yourselves after those people you know of that have modeled that self-control in their lives. In this way, we can learn how to do it, and, and we can receive encouragement from those who have succeeded spiritually. Now, if, 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 if we're smokers, if we're drinkers, or gossips, or sexually impure, we'll never overcome these things if we hang around people who have similar vices, and that's what kind of happens. We hang around people who have kind of similar vices and problems going on because then it kind of becomes okay. It becomes the normal. But if we have fellowship with those who walk in the light, who will hold us accountable, who will encourage us in doing what is right instead of excusing our vices, then we'll begin to resemble that positive example. 
So if you, if you want to fly like an eagle, you better hang around with the eagles and learn how they fly. So pattern your life after winners, not losers. And, and finally, not the least of it, but finally, we need to pray. You need to be praying. In order to cultivate self-control, you need to pray. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 43, um, we find the, this, this setting where Jesus is at the Mount of Olives and his disciples are with him and he goes off to pray. Luke writes the following. He says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. So here's Jesus, who is perfect without sin. He knows God's will completely and, and yet was tempted. Now his response to these times of testing was to pray and ask, ask for strength to do what God wanted him to do. He was God, but he, he still had to contend with the flesh. His spirit was willing. It was his body that needed help. And it's kind of the same thing with us. I think there, there isn't a person here who actually wants to sin. I don't think anyone here, and those who are online as well too, would say, yeah, you know what? I think I want to do that. There's a person here who say, well, hey, you know, I can't wait to leave this building so that I can go do something bad like steal, cheat, lie, or be sexually impure. I can't wait to do that. Nobody's thinking they're anxious to do that. Most people are saying, wow, I want to avoid that stuff. But sometimes we fall to temptation. The spirit inside is willing to do what's right. It's the flesh that double crosses us. <laughs> Now, I want you to notice something about Jesus' situation here, too. He knew God's will perfectly. He had done God's will perfectly. He still prayed for the strength to continue to do so. It makes you think that, that this wasn't the first time that he prayed like that. And that keeping his, his, his human body under control required divine effort, just like the rest of us. We need God's help. Is that the nature of your prayers? Asking God to intervene in situations in your life? Instead of giving in and finding excuses for our weaknesses, we should pray and ask for strength to overcome them. And God will give it to you. If you only ask, we need to ask. Self-control is that ultimate battle that goes on. That ultimate battle and, and a virtue that needs to be cultivated. You do that by knowing God's word, by being aware of the danger and consequences that are a result of the lack of self-control, by being ready to fight and suffer in order to win control, by following winners instead of losers, and by praying constantly for God's help. Philip Keller, author, uh, he, he wrote the book entitled, A Gardener Looks at the Fruit of the Spirit. He says that self-control in the biblical sense means myself, my whole person, my whole being, Body, soul, and spirit come under the control of Christ. It means that I am an individual governed by God. My entire life, every aspect of it, whether spiritual, moral, or physical, has become subject to the sovereignty of God's spirit. I am a man under authority. The running of my affairs, 
my attitudes, my actions, is a right that has been relinquished and turned over to God's gracious spirit. This is the ultimate battle. Right there is the ultimate battle. Relinquishing control (laughs) to God. But it is our choice to make. No one else can make it for us. In his book, When God Whispers Your Name, Max Lucado writes these words. He says, I choose self-control. I am a spiritual being. After this body is dead, my spirit will soar. I refuse to let what will rot rule the eternal. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. I will be influenced only by God. I will be taught only by Christ. I choose self-control. And I guess the question for all of us here today, what do you choose? What will you choose? I have Annie and Becky come on up. They're going to lead us in a couple songs. And if you need to come and pray, Altar's open. Please come and pray as uh, we sing this next song. Those online, create a space there for you and God to have a little discussion. Have a little talk while we sing these last two songs.